Hello and welcome to another episode of Boundless Body Radio. I'm your host, Casey Ruff, and today we have another amazing guest to introduce to you now. Dr. Jeremy Sherman is a social science writer and researcher with a master's degree in public policy and a PhD in evolutionary epistemology, which is a focus on how organisms make efforts to survive. For the past 25 years, he has collaborated with Harvard and Berkeley neuroscientist and biological anthropologist Terence Deacon, studying the self, how organisms struggle for existence, and how that struggle emerged from chemistry. He is the author of the book, Neither Ghost Nor Machine, The Emergence and Nature of Selves, which he wrote in 2017. He specializes in what he calls psychoproctology, which is a way to discover and thwart total jerks, which he uniquely refers to as jerkology. Dr. Jeremy Sherman, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here. It is Glad an to talk. absolute honor to have you on. Um, I don't remember jerkology being uh, offered as a class when I was going to college. Is that like a new thing? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, I made it up. It's um, So I, I call my research cradle to grave. I work on the, everything from the origins of life to our current grave situation. Um, and I don't, I, I, I'm not trying to, um, uh, I'm not saying uh, we're doomed or anything, but I, there are unique challenges to being human. And uh, one of the challenges is that while there are a lot of predators in the animal world and parasites, there are no a-holes. There are no, being an a-hole is a human thing or a total jerk is a human thing. And it's a product of us having language. So I've, so I worked the whole continuum from the origins of life through the evolution of language to the, you could say, the emergence or the evolution of a capacity humans have to become total jerks. So it's it's quite broad. I call it my middle-aged spread. Um, and it has me reading everything from physics uh, to, to politics. Um, Yes, but jerkology isn't taught in schools nearly as much. These days, when people go to school, they don't know what career they're going to end up in. But everything, everybody does need to learn how not to be a jerk, how to identify or come up with, an, you know, how to, how to distinguish jerks, and also how to stop them without becoming one. I consider that core curriculum and should be in there from the beginning. And no, you didn't get a cat class in jerkology. They didn't teach it back then. <laughs> I made up the name for it, and um, and I also call it psychoproctology. Uh, you know, pro- proctologists are doctors of the anus and rectum, and so psychoproctology is a light name for a very serious topic. I think it's one of the most important topics of of all. Is is basically the core question is what is a butthead? Because it can't just be whoever you happen to butt heads with. We need a more objective way of distinguishing a kind of human behavior that becomes very unrealistic and dangerous to ourselves. Man, yeah, that's awesome. I'm so excited to deep dive into some of these concepts with you. Deciding that you were going to take on the question of life and the meaning of life, it's, it's, it's so broad and big. And I just think what you and I were just having a conversation about offline, you mentioned that you just stepped, you know, out of your office where you were talking, I, I, I think with other experts and, and, and specialists in the field about the beginnings of life and, you know, all these super important questions. Yet you also said you had an amazing time playing a gig over the weekend. Like, how are we to make sense? <laughs> what, what, where do we put our priorities with all of this stuff that's going on all the time? <laughs> well, where people do and where I do is a, uh, I ended up with a lucky life. I ended up with uh, enough money early on that I could do anything. Um, and that is it's, I, I, I don't deserve any sympathy for it, but it does create its own problems. It does make it so you're not scrambling all day long to figure out uh, how to put food on your table, but you got to do something. And for me, it was a, um, it was a big driver. Is I, I I also grew up in the counterculture era, um, uh, and as a result, there was a sense of obligation to do something to help out in the world. So I had a whole first career as an environmental activist. I founded a national lobbying ex- uh, organization. I worked as the head of public affairs for some green companies, and then um, I had a juicy midlife crisis. A number of things were going on that made me feel like. No, I'm not having much of an effect. Um, and uh, the ideologies that I had been 
thriving on for years, kind of love is the answer, be here now, that sort of stuff. It was starting to feel like that actually wasn't going to be a life-size, sustainable way of going up about my life. I got interested in evolutionary psychology. From there, I got interested in complexity theory. And then I lucked into this, I just stumbled into the company of this uh, Harvard neuroscientist who they described there as a saint and a genius. And the, the saint part was that he wasn't, he, I've worked with this dude for 25 years. He's never pulled rank on me. Um, he, he's just, he's happy to have a conversation with anyone who's interested in the subject. And I was working from this idea at the time that we are our genes. And he starts to hint that actually he's moving in a different direction. He had already written an important book on the evolution of language and how it changes organisms. Um, and he had just turned his attention to this question that we, we it's just unfamiliar to us, which is what is a self? Because there's a, a difference. Selves try. And things in physics and chemistry aren't trying to do anything. They just are. You know, there's work in the physical world, but it's not effort. It's not effort to achieve something. And um, and he had noticed, he was, he was working among all these neuroscientists who basically were treating the mind as a kind of machine with a bunch of triggers um, and treating biology as, you know, a, You've got this instruction or program in DNA. And it was saying, wait a second, that's not, that's, that doesn't solve the problem because DNA isn't trying to do anything. And neurons are not like computer circuits. They're actually, you know, we, we now know a whole lot more about the mapping of DNA and certainly are beginning to find out more about the mapping of neurons and how they switch each other or change each other. But none of that gets at this question, what is trying? And how did it start? So he got, he, at that time, he got really interested in uh, starting from the ground up. Don't start with consciousness. Don't start with the higher level stuff. He described it as trying to explain hair uh, from porcupine quills. Yeah, porcupine quills are hair, but they're highly evolved and specialized. He wanted to figure out how you'd go from simple chemistry to the first system that tried. And I lucked out at that time, he was shifting his home from Harvard to Berkeley, where I live. So we've been hanging and jamming on this subject for 25 years now. And it's been, I mean, I've had a good romantic love life, but I do consider this guy the love of my life because, because of the conversations, the quality of the conversations, um, the depth we go to and the, the methods we've developed for for going at this where you don't get to smuggle in any smoke or mirrors has just been uh, the, the thrill ride. So everybody thinks about themselves a lot. They think about, you know, themselves and what they're trying to do, themselves and their aim. But we very rarely step out to wonder what is a self and what is an aim. Mm. A aim comes from your body, and yet it's got no mass, no volume, no location, and it's not some ghost that's been added from the outside. So my book's called Neither Ghost Nor Machine, uh, The Emergence and Nature of Selves. And yeah, we, it's, we've, got a, we've got a theory for how that happens. Mm. Wow, so interesting. There's so many things to unpack there. I th yeah. this is all this is all giving me the same question that Jean Valjean has in, in Les Misérables. Which so what am I? Who am I? What part of me ceases to become me when I die? Like like who are we? Right. So so and and if you generalize that, one of the effects is you you free yourself from the personal stakes in it. You know, in in general, if I have a question, it's motivated by a hope. Um, so I just want the truth and it better be good or, you know, let the best theory win and it better be mine. If, if you start, if you step outside of yourself through something I, I think of as a kind of an anthropological introspection, which is I'm stepping away. I, I can kind of observe myself. I think this is an alternative to meditation. I just came up with the term a couple of days ago. It's kind of anthro introspeculation. You're guessing at what you are, but here you are this mid-sized mammal with language. And the assumption that you are um, your consciousness, which controls everything, that's jive. I mean, your body is obviously controlling a whole lot of it. And a lot of it is automatic, habitual, accumulated over eons, accumulated over a life of learning. So what is a self becomes a more interesting, it becomes an interesting question 
I mean, I, I got to say, I got therapeutic benefits out of moving this direction. You know, a lot of people go into academics for a career or because they're nerds. I didn't. I'm a soul nerd. I mean, I came to it with live personal questions, chiefly what is the self and how can I manage myself better? And one of the things I got out of working in this field is um, uh, that it's nothing personal, that I'm that I get to observe myself as one of these mid-sized mammals with language and all the interesting, curious, almost slapstick things about being a human. Um, it, now, to your question, what is a self? I've got an answer about that, and I have to unpack it a little bit, but it's not that hard. A self is something different, yet from nothing but physical chemistry. So I have to make clear, we're, we are nothing we do defies the laws of physics and chemistry. There's no magic added. Nothing was added to us. And yet we are radically different from what chemistry does. Chemistry is totally passive. We're proactive. We're hustling all day. Uh, one of the main things we're doing is hustling to regenerate what breaks down. Um, this is kind of the fundamental challenge that we have as a living beings, it's called the second law of thermodynamics. And it's basically that everything gets mixed up and disordered and dis, um, desegregated. If you give it some time, um, it's actually the definition of energy is that process of breaking down. There's a kind of a directionality to, to it. So if I take a frozen pizza out of the freezer and stick it into a hot box, um, what happens is the distribution of fast and slow moving molecules gets all mixed up. I'm not pumping heat into the, the pizza, nor am I cooling the oven. It's an equalization. So the second law, one of the effects is that stuff falls apart. And we've got to hustle. You and I, every day, hustle to keep from falling apart. Um, which means, for example, that a whole lot of what this boundless body of ours is doing is regenerating itself silently out of sight, out of mind. And we think of ourselves as the psychological and emotional beings. No, I produce on my slouchiest day 240 billion new cells. And I'm doing that because my old cells are breaking down. So the first trying we look for in our research, the first self is a system that can regenerate itself faster than it's degenerating. Hmm. So how does it do that? Since nothing's been added, it does it by channeling energy into effort to regenerate what? The channeling of energy. So I so let me give you a grounded example of it. I go out and work in my days during the day to keep clothes on myself and, uh, and a roof over my head. So one of the things I'm doing is um, regenerating protection from the things that would degenerate me. Mm. A roof over, over my head keeps the, you know, keeps the weather out, a clothes on my back. Um, that's what all organisms are doing. They go out and find energy and then they channel. And I want to hit that word channel channel that energy. So it's not just doing anything as it would do. It's not just dithering. You know, I, I, I have to control myself during the day. I have discipline. I deliberate, um, means I, I keep myself from doing whatever I have to control myself. So I am in that sense, a constraint on what happens. I limit what happens. And that's, so what I think I am, what a self is, is a constraint that keeps energy from dithering. It channels energy into effort, work on my own behalf to regenerate a constraint. I am a self-regenerative constraint. And when I die, I am all, all my parts, all my matter is freed up. It's passive, but it's freed up to do whatever. So I am actually a limitation. I'm not a I'm not something added to physics. I'm a subset that keeps itself of subset. Mm. But it's like I, I limit what I I limit what physics would do, and I keep myself within limited bounds until I die. And but in my case, I got three kids, and so I'm passing on that capacity to limit what energy does. So, kind of core to this work is this idea of constraint. Not you know how does something get added that does some. You know, some new gizmo, some supernatural gizmo, but how do limitations happen? And a simple example of limitations that's important to our work is traffic congestion. 
You know, so congestion limits how you move. You'll take a path of least resistance around it. Okay, well, what is congestion? It's not a material thing that got added. It's not a, it's, it's how some paths become easier than other paths and how there are changes in how paths go. So that's a little bit abstract, but I, I, you, get, you might get a gist of it, but, but at least think of this, this part. This is the takeaway. I am a constraint. I, I limit what happens. And that's, that's the fancy footwork of being a self. That's so interesting. So is this why it's better to read a book than to smoke meth all day? You put that, you put that kind of constriction on yourself to become better, do more, and that provides you with the meaning in your life. Am I getting that right? Yeah, no, no, that that's that's right. And yet it becomes um th- there's a whole lot of guesswork in deciding what will be better for you and what will be worse for you. So one of the things uh, I a lot of what interests me is uh addiction and not as a bad thing exclusively. That is, I think that altruism is 99% addiction. You think about it in terms of a romantic partnership. You get together with someone and the other person does some things for you. So you stop having to do them and you lose the ability to do them. And then if you break up, one of the things that you might notice is, I mean, is, is that you no longer can do things for yourself that you used to be able to do before you got hooked up in the first place. So this is that's actually what the meeting is about upstairs right now. And Terry's here and a bunch of other people. We're talking about how you end up with these codependencies. And once again, it's not pejorative. So for me, the definition of love and addiction is the same. It's doing dedicated or constrained work to maintain access to something that you're dependent upon. And the question then becomes, what's the difference between them? I think it's basically a prognosis or a prediction. There's if I think that someone's uh, partnered with someone who's going to be bad for them, I might say you're just addicted to them. But if I think that they're with someone who's going to be good for them, I'll say you're in love. But it's the same phenomena, very just just different consequences and different predictions about it. So to be addicted to books, as I became eventually, I didn't start out that way. It was a trudge to get me to read. I was looking for status and I'd show off the books I'd read, but I wasn't getting much out of them. Um, Now I'm hooked on them, though I only read by audio at this point. I speed listen to books about one a week. Um, I could never get, I'm, I'm way too ADD, ADHD to sit down and read books anymore. I mean, I did a lot <laughs> for school, but now it's all speed listening and podcasts and all that. But anyway, to get addicted to something like that, as compared to getting addicted to meth, it really depends on how it's going to turn out for you. And it's guesswork, how it's going to turn out for you. Um, there are some pretty reliable bets for it turning out badly. Meth would be an example, <laughs> but there are other things we get addicted to that are on the fence, you can't tell how it's gonna how it's gonna get how it's gonna go. You know, plants were addicted to um, um, yeah carbon dioxide, and we're generating oxygen, and oxygen is a toxin. Oxygen um, uh, will rust things, and that's that's the main force of degeneration in our bodies is oxygen. Uh, I mean, we have to protect against it. At the same time, the good news of the the plant's addiction to oxygen is that eventually these creatures evolved that could use the energy in oxygen. The energy that the very the energy, the thing about energy is the very stuff that enables us to make effort is also the stuff that degenerates us. It's just wild. That so this is why wild. you, you know, insulation or plumbing pipes, you have to make those things durable because energy. The very stuff you use to regenerate yourself is the very stuff that will degenerate yourself. So this whole business about addictions, uh, what are good addictions, good good addictions versus bad addictions? Fascinating to me. And I adore my addictions. I've got some just killer addictions. They're great. They they sustain me. They keep me focused. They uh, they're pull like like exercise, good exercise that you want to do. It's not obligation. That's that's the feeling you want to the extent you can get it. Um, and I've got that around all the things I do. I'm just lucky that way. It's dumb luck, but I ended up with 
I'm really hooked on things that I that are growing me in directions I want to grow, and I'm happy for that. Mm. Well, you <laughs> you mentioned the predictive nature of making those kinds of decisions, and you're also talking about trying and striving. And so, what about those things, those addictions for you, make you want to strive towards them? What what were some of the things that gave you an idea that yeah, this is going to be beneficial. This is how I want to spend my time. Um. Well, in it's different for different ones, but I think probably the first one was um, a major chip on my shoulder growing up was a sense that I had to be useful. Um, I had to feel good about myself. And in my case, I mean, I know people who are are happy to cruise uh, through life and um, just enjoy the ride. And I didn't end up being like that. I'm slightly more neurotic than that by nature. Um, and some of it also was role models. I had heroes in my life. Uh, my father was kind of a hero this way. He was uh, he was a businessman, um, uh, quite successful, and also a social change agent. So there was a way I felt punked in his presence for a long time. And then he died young. He died at 59. And in a way that cleared the field and I could start to move in directions without worrying about crowding into his space and um, uh, and and proving also inadequate in comparison to him. And so in my case, I just ended up finding, I, I ended up looking for the biggest thing I could bite down on the biggest uh, issue. That's why I was working on climate change back in the eighties, founded an organization working on that. I'd been working on nuclear issues before that. But the thing about those big issues is, um, I mean, if you do local charity as a way of being useful, it's a little bit like biting on a gumball. Um, you know, you can you get a purchase on it. Your mouth can get around it. But if you're dealing with climate change or something like that, you're dealing with problems that are way bigger than humans can deal with. And you could say one of the disappointing notions in, or changes in my life is I start out trying to save the world. And by now I realize, no, you just you're a human among a growing population of humans, all of whom want to take the uh the, the wheel of spaceship earth and steer it whichever way. And no, I don't bet I will have much of an influence on the world. So in a way, I resign myself to taking the best notes I possibly can, real careful notes on what it is to be us. And that's why I ended up in it, it, with these interests. Um, it's like if you, you know, if you're, if they told you, Buckminster Fuller once said, what, what were you about to do before they told you you had to go out and make a living? And that was kind of my situation. Because I, I was practically vocationally derailed. I, you know, I began to think about my career and came into some money through the family. I mean, I and and I was just embarrassed as hell by it uh, for the longest time. It's interesting to watch the Trump sons deal with it a different way than I did. You know, people have different coping strategies for the um, for a windfall. You know, and some will simply say, "No, we're the chosen, and that was meant to be, and I I deserve this, and all that sort of stuff." I didn't have that feeling at all. Um, but to be taking careful notes on what it is to be us, to basically be sitting on the front porch of the universe, wondering about it and us in it with buddies, that's my idea of a good time. Wow. And and lucked into some good buddies to do it with. Mm. So is that, I mean, is that as far as the purpose of life goes? Is just, you know, we can't take the wheel of the of this, you know, the planet like we want to. I can't change the world. I can help a person, but I can't, you know, make massive change. Is is the idea of life just to make it as pleasurable and as enjoyable as possible while we have it before we all die? It's no, it's very complicated. But one of the interesting parents. So if I say, so the the standard answer for where purpose comes from is that it comes from a higher purpose. And most of my buddies by now, you know, who are not in this work, they'll say, no, I no longer believe in God, but I believe in a higher power that is rooting for love. Let's say that'll be a standard answer I get a lot these days. Well, our approach has to be different in Origins of Life Research, because we're really trying to figure out what trying is. And we notice that the universe is 14 billion years old. And in our neck of the woods here around the earth, we have not found anything in the first 10 billion years, the first two thirds that you have to explain in terms of trying or wanting or desiring. That is, it's all physics and chemistry until life emerges. So we don't get to, we don't get to talk like there's some 
overarching meaning in the universe. We don't assume that mattering came before matter. We assume, and this would be what most scientists would have to assume, that matter came first and mattering emerged from it. And the question then becomes, how does it emerge? But one of the, up, one of the upshots of that is that meaning is real, but has no ultimate or original meaning. That is, from my perspective, from what we know now, there is no fundamental meaning in the universe. But there is, there sure as hell is meaning for me and for you. Um, so meanings will tend to meander. What, what life is about will change. And you could say one fundamental difference that comes with humans is that before us, the only game in town was biological reproductive success. That is, you and your lineage was all that mattered. Those who had the most viable offspring won. And then we end up with language and this whole capacity to empathize with other people and learn about other people and learn about the planet overall. And now we're torn between, you could say, philanthropy and, um, and selfishness. And, and you still got very highly evolved people by biological standards who only care about themselves and their family's dynasty, whether they be mafia bosses who we watch, like the Sopranos is a good example of this. That's a highly evolved family from a biological perspective. And the fact that they're doing all this damage elsewhere um, is secondary to them or, or inconsequential. And you can say this about any dictator too, highly evolved by the biological standards. But so for me, yeah, it's different for different people. You know, for some people, enjoying a life is all they can afford. That is, life is so much of a, a, a uphill battle for them anyway. But, um, and then there are very wealthy people who still can't get beyond that, uh, bio, that, that highly evolved state of just getting more for themselves, just accumulating. But for a guy like me, that wasn't that dog didn't hunt. I needed I needed to be feeling like I was doing something useful while here, and not just for my kids. And that's why I, it's lucky to find work that feels that way to me. And for all I know, this is back to the question of prediction. I could be wrong about it. As you, so I am I am the technical term for my school of thought is fallibilism. So fallibilists, uh, the motto for a fallibilist is no matter how confident I am in a bet, I'm still more confident that it is a bet. Mm. And if you look at trying, I choose the word trying very carefully because trying doesn't always succeed. I mean, I think Yoda, Yoda just got this completely wrong. It's highly motivational <laughs> to say there is no trying. There's only do or not do or whatever he said. Um, no, trying is all there is. You know, you can you can guess right and have it come out badly. And so you can't play in my area of research. You can't play in science without the possibility that you will have spent your whole life barking up the wrong tree. It's a trial and error process. And I'm okay with that. I'm totally fine with that. So I cannot tell you that my life has true meaning by anybody else's standards. All I can tell you is that I'm trying to make it have real meaning. I'm trying to be careful about it and, um, and it's satisfying, mm. but whether it would be, but whether I'm part of the solution or part of the problem, I couldn't tell you people who are absolutely certain they're part of the solution are the problem from my perspective. Interesting. That is that, that's what, you know, the, uh, total jerks, are absolutely certain they are the solution. And I think that's the problem. <laughs> so. Interesting. Wow. I just I just finished the audiobook uh Thinking in Bets by Annie Duke. She's a former professional poker player. And she talked about that same thing. Like there are certain odds at a poker table, but it, that doesn't mean that it's going to fall that way every single time. If you have an 80% chance of winning a hand, that also means you got a 20% chance of losing that hand. And she made the the kind of connection that the poker is a much better game for, for deciding how to handle life than a game like chess is where everybody's on kind of the same playing field. Exactly. And, and oh, she, that's right. That's yeah, right. She made a really great argument in the first chapters of her book where she talks about the decision by um, Pete Carroll to throw the ball on the goal line at the 2015 Super Bowl, if you remember, that got intercepted. And she 
defended uh-huh. him by saying like, no, this was actually a very good decision. It just went the other way. Statistically, this was a great move. Would have stopped the clock if it would have gone incomplete. The odds of interception yeah. were so yeah. low. It, you're not thinking about the decision correctly. When he got murdered <laughs> in the media for making that decision, she defended him and said, look, he made a really informed decision. It just didn't go well for him. Right. Yeah. No, that's a, that's a huge issue. And um, really, whenever the odds are not 100% or 0%, you can bet on the better odds and you get the worse odds. And that's just how it is. It was a major eye-opener for me to realize that about my own life. It actually was a source of a lot of relaxation, not into what I call the doctrine of foregone inconclusion, which is kind of giving yourself the slack to say, hey, nobody can know anything for sure. Therefore, all bets are equally good. Um, it's it's basically an invitation or portal into hypocrisy, fatalism, all of that. I don't buy that at all. No, I am trying to make better bets, but I do know that you don't reach 100% on bets because really nothing is 100%. Um, uh, you know, the odds are odds vary, but poker is great that way. And you know that um, I mean, gambling is how we got the whole world of statistics. That is, there's this mathematician, Blaise Pascal, um, and he had a gambling was very fashionable in France, and nobody had the slightest idea about probability. Probable back then in the 1600s meant on good authority. It meant, so you could say that uh, the Pope says this, so it is probable. And suddenly, so someone asked, uh, someone said, hey, can you give me a hand with this gambling I'm doing? And Pascal invented all the, the, the core of all statistical methods that we use ever since. And then he became a devout Christian and came up with Pascal's wager, which is the bet on whether uh, you should believe in God or not. Yeah. Not a bet on whether God exists, but a bet on whether you should believe in him or not. Totally a gambler's game, the way he fr- he framed it up. He says, look, if you if you bet on God, uh, then you'll have a, um, you know, it'll, it'll cost you something if it turns out there is no God. Um, but it's a minor cost compared to the cost of if you don't invest in uh, in getting into heaven and it turns out there is heaven, uh, which is a, a totally jive. Um, I mean, it, 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 it's, it doesn't hold up. It basically assumes that there are only two possibilities, that the Christian Bible is absolutely true or that it's, uh, or there's nothing. But, but you set that aside, it was an interesting move, and it's considered the founding of the whole field of decision theory wow. was gambling. That's fascinating. So yeah, poker, poker's deep. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's amazing. Your book is called Neither Ghost Nor Machine. Can you explain a little bit of that concept? We've kind of touched around it, but I, I want to know, like, when when did that kind of idea solidify for you, and what, what are you trying to communicate with um, your book? Okay, so, uh, yeah, so the, the simple question is, um, how do you go from matter to mattering? And the there are four main answers to it. One is, you don't go from matter to mattering because there's always a kind of a core mattering in the world. Even physics matters to physics. Even molecules, atoms, and subatomic particles are trying. So that's one school. Another. So that, those guys, those guys believe that it's just kind of always been there. Um, uh, that we don't have to explain it. Another school of thought says, no, there's no mattering. Nothing matters. Look at you. You're just a bunch of chemical me- mechanisms. And then there's another school that simply says we can't know. I, was, I, was, I had a party here the other night, and some uh, some newcomers. I was introducing this idea to them, and they simply said, um, "We can't know." That there's actually a name for that in philosophy. They're called mysterians. And and I say to people like that, "Look, we're having a conversation about how matter, how mattering emerges from matter. If you don't want to be part of that conversation, it's cool. You're excused from the table. It's it's totally fine. You certainly don't need to know an answer to this question to live. But if you are interested in the question, it's a real one. Um, So that puts me in the fourth camp, which is called emergentist. We're trying to explain how life emerges from non-life. And um, the two main moves are, so the one that, the, the one that says that there's always been, it's what they call in philosophy, always already there. So 
you know, mattering or trying was always already there. It's in atoms or it's the same as atoms, you know, the atoms move. And so that means they're trying or the river is going towards the sea, which is the same thing as trying. Um, believe it or not, that that has credibility among scientists. I mean, one of the, and philosophers, one of the problems in our field is we're dealing with abstractions and you can believe all sorts of stuff about it. So I have good friends who are, um, you know, established in academics who believe the stuff. I, you know, I run it by friends who are not in that world. They say, really? They can't, you can get away with believing that in academics? Um, yeah, you can get so far afield, you can believe anything. Anyway, no, I, we think it's a real question, but coming back to the name of the book, you either assume that there's some supernatural thingy that is smuggled in um, to a body and into, into matter, pumped into matter by God or by whatever. That's the ghost concept, which is that there's got to be some thingy in there, some some atom of purpose that that it's driving you, basically a, a driver for your car, your your station wagon of a body, of a physical body. Um the other, the other says, no, you're just a machine. And I'm saying, so I wanted to start the book by saying, I don't buy either of those. So it's neither ghost nor machine. The burden is on me to explain what else it could be. So that's the emergence and nature of selves. And so the book, is, so, so this guy I work with, Terry, the, the, um, the Harvard Berkeley neuroscientist, a famously difficult writer. And I, I, when I first read his first book before I met him, I cried and not because it was moving. I just <laughs> felt so dumb. Wow. I mean, this book, the, the, the neuroscience and everything. And then we ended up meeting and, um, and I got really interested in the work. And now that I've been working with him for all of these years, um, I, I, you know, I've read I've read both books many, many times. And so my book is a distillation that makes it as, as accessible as possible. And then I also put out videos online. I, I have two channels on um, YouTube. Uh, these are too short to suck videos. They're designed to be so short that they can't suck, even if they do. But they're, um, you know, they're one of them is on this subject, and it's called Neither Ghost Nor Machine. That's one of my channels. And the other one is Psychoproctology. Um, and then I also have podcasts and, but in a way coming into this work late, cause I had a whole first career before I went into this work and I wasn't going to get a tenured position in part because I'd gotten too general, you know, you got to be pretty siloed in order to get a tenured position. So I decided now I'm going to be someone who makes this stuff accessible because I found it so relevant in my life. And, um, I, I I just think that it can be said more simply because it is kind of intuitive. That thing about keeping a roof over your head and and replacing worn out clothes, the fact that life has been doing that since the beginning, replacing worn out clothes, the 240 billion cells I have to generate every day in order to keep up with all those cells that wear out. Um, that's intuitive. Uh, this approach is very intuitive. And to my sense of sensibility, we're, we're basically explaining with no smoke and mirrors, what a soul is, what a self is, what a spirit is. Um, and I would argue that in the sciences, they haven't been doing much better than the new age about this. So we have more technical sounding names for them in, um, in biology. We'll talk about motivation or appetite or um, uh, agency or interiority. There's various technical names but they have not been explained. We, they're assumed. So if you go to a psych conference, every the currency that everybody's talking about is motivations. But I asked the top players in psych, what is a motivation? And they can't tell you. They can only tell you about its consequences. They know it does things. That's no different from religion at its core. So we're saying, no, we gotta, we have to explain it. Whether you call, it doesn't matter. Naming is not explaining. You call it a soul, call it a spirit. I don't care what you what you call it. It's the source of trying and it has to be explained. Or else science is just doing another smoke and mirrors thing. Wow. So that's where this work becomes interesting. And that's I think that's also part of the high for me, is that we're out on the edge. Um working on core issues, which is a paradox, but that's how I think about it. I mean, that is, that is, you know, if you go to an academic university, if you go to a university and you go to a physics class, if the physics professor said that the moon pulls on the tides because it's trying to achieve something, that teacher would be fired. That's considered insane talk in physics. And yet right down the hall, 
if a, a, a biologist or a psychologist can talk about motivation all they want, what explains this divide? That's what that book is about. That's what the tele, uh, the, the the neither goes no machine videos are about. Um, you've got to explain how you can make that jump. Hmm. And in a way, we're trying to make we're trying to make purpose that is not broad universal purpose, but an individual's purposes, like trying to achieve something safe for science because science hasn't ha, science hasn't they're they're ambivalent about talking about it like like in if you're a biologist if you're at a biology school you're not allowed to use motivational talk when talking about biology even though they sneak around it all the time they but they have but you know i get reports from biologists you're taught you may you can talk like that casually among students but when you're writing a paper you have to treat it like a machine mm. And wow. so we're saying, no, you got, we got to do better than that. If we don't have an explanation for it. And, and, and then the other, sorry, I'm going on, but let me just add one more thing. I think I am one of the only people working in everyday psychology who has an explanation for what motivation is not a description of how it, what it, what it, what it accomplishes, but actually what it is from chemistry. And like I said at the beginning, my 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 theory about this could be completely wrong, but I've got one, and it and it, so it ends up informing a huge amount. I mean, I've written 950 articles for Psychology Today, all grounded in this approach, where I actually know what an appetite is. I have a guess at I have a good guess with no smoke and mirrors. No one's ever found any holes in our theory where we smuggled in some magic. Um, yeah, I have a theory from the ground up. And it, no, it doesn't start with consciousness. It doesn't start with emotions or feelings. It starts with this silent self that ge- regenerates itself. The stuff that's going on inside yourself all the time without you knowing it, without you having to worry about it, that, that regenerates yourself. That's the first trying. Mm. Wow. It's just so <laughs> fascinating. <laughs> so fascinating. <laughs> you, you mentioned something in what you said that you wanted to make this a little bit more accessible. And certainly totally, for somebody yeah. as mentally um, feeble as I am, I sure appreciate that quite a bit. A lot of your concepts are still way over my head, but I love what you did with one of your podcasts. I mean, most recently you had a podcast, uh, What's Up With A-Holes, but before that you did a podcast series called Negotiate With Yourself and Win, where it's a conversation between you and yourself, which I found to be endlessly fascinating. I listened to every episode. (laughs) I also listened to my (laughs) podcasts and books um, at two times the speed. So hearing you argue back and forth with yourself was was kind of interesting (laughs) at, at a really high pace. But why did you decide to do that podcast series in that style. I think it's super unique and very interesting. Well, so part of it is that I tend to, I tend towards solitude these days. I had a great romantic love life. I had a great run, but these days I'm 65 now and um, I'm, I enjoyed my solitude, but it also means I don't have a lot of collaborators. So I was figuring out, okay, so how can, how can I make this interesting? And then early on, I had thought I, early on, I wrote a book. It didn't get formally published. It's self-published on, on Amazon, negotiate with yourself and win doubt management skills for people who can hear themselves think. Um, but I love the irony of negotiate with yourself and win who's winning in that case. Um, and I decided to put this thing together. Um, dialogues really work well. You know that because you're an interviewer. You know that the the dialogue makes for much easier listening in a lot of cases. And it turns out that what I'm doing, TikTok is full of it uh, these days. The the dial, I mean, the number of TikToks I've seen in which people are basically interacting with themselves through the technology, it it just seemed an obvious way to go. And I'm going to get back to the theory. I just spent the COVID time. It was a great time to be doing this. I just I was just concentrating on the psychoproctology, and um, and then I just launched a a third podcast, um, which is called "To Name It Is to Tame It," which is based on an uh, an idea that's been with me for a long time. So I have this um, I have this pathology where neologisms come to me quickly, um, and I, so I've got about a hundred thousand five hundred terms that I have coined over the years, and I make a point of not making them stupid. Uh, redundant or just silly. These are names for things that happen in everyday thought and conversation that don't yet have names. And I think that to name something really enables you to see it, to think about it, to imagine it, to spot it when it flies by. It's basically like bird watching. If you know the names of the birds, you can spot what flies by 
in this case, in thought and conversation. So this is these are 10-minute episodes, each one of them on a new word and how to apply it. These are practical words for everyday life. Um, you know, all the articles I write for Psychology Day are about everyday decision-making. I mean, the, the, the range is broad. I don't end up doing much on... So my main, my main blog there is called Ambigamy, Insights for the Deeply Romantic and Deeply Skeptical. And, you know, when I want to get more page views, I'll write something about sex, love, and romance. But it's mostly about the tough judgment calls in everyday life. Um, so, and, and a lot of, so I'm really interested in the practical application of this stuff. That's part of the brain Velcro I aim to achieve is, achieve is that this stuff has real application every day. You know, so it, I think these words that I, that I promote, that I, that I introduce on the to name it is to tame it are the kinds of things that enable us to read between the lines with greater comprehension. Mm. Um, it, it, you know, just uh, better ways to track. Because so the fascinating thing, I mean, you, you probably know tons of jargon in several fields, but funny thing is we don't have great jargon for the moves that people make in everyday life. Our language for that is kind of crude. You know, we got a few things like pot call, like kettle black or projecting, you know, we, and, and I think one of the reasons we don't is that they're touchy subjects. You start to bring these words into our vocabulary, you know, so virtue signaling, take that. It's a recent, what we call folk psychology term. Um, it becomes dangerous to have that in our system because it's double-edged. You can use it to identify people who are just posers, but you can also use it when someone is actually advocating for a better approach, you can dismiss them as just virtue signaling. So I understand why we don't have many of these terms, why our jargon for everyday thought and conversation is in some ways cruder than it is in accounting or something like that, uh, or surgery or something. But uh, the To Name It is, is To Tame It podcast is really just introducing these words that um, yeah, I thought would once take over the world and make everybody talk this vocabulary. They they ended up being mostly thinking words for me, though some of them have um, currency. I you know I've had terms that take off and people got interested in them. Not at the not at the national level, but within research community and all that. So so I just keep on as long as I am generating new ideas and new output. I'm a happy chappy, and that's my addiction. Mm. And uh, yeah, so it goes like that. Wow. Well, I mean, you're one of my favorite people to follow on Twitter because you put these words out there and you get me to like think in these terms in a, in a little bit different way that I would have not been introduced to that. There you go. Yeah. Tw Twitter's yeah. terrible. <laughs> Twitter is absolutely awful. I hate it. <laughs> I'm just going to say it. We lost no, Twitter I, I, as a sponsor. <laughs> yeah, I'm really slow to Twitter. I'm age appropriately slow to Twitter. I was, I, I'm, I've been on Facebook for a long time, um, and I use it. Uh, so in the 17th century, uh, gentlemen scholars, which is, uh, I'm afraid, what, what I am. I'm a gent scholar. Um, uh, they kept what were called commonplace books. That is, they, they put all their ideas in one book. It's basically an intellectual journal. I've been using Facebook like that for years. But I've been trying to get onto uh, Twitter lately, trying to, and I am not finding a lot of rich content there. Um, no, I'm having more fun with Instagram because I'm using Canva and I'm, I'm deep at the bumper sticker meme kind of stuff. It's it's a great fast form for generating this stuff and for for absorbing it. I mean, books are practically dead. It's a it's there are so many other mediums that have more traction these days. I still write them. Someone said books are for writing, not for reading. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> wow. So anyway. Uh, yeah. Interesting. Well, Twitter is where you find jerks, um, assholes, buttheads. And this is something we talked about a little bit. Um, I'm, I'm curious how you got into that topic. And do you, do you distinguish between those categories? No, I, I don't. So I, I, early on in the book or the podcast. So I have this podcast, which is basically me reading the whole book. Um, uh, and early on in it, I have to, I have to list the variety of ways. So the first chapter introduces it. The second chapter explain, uh, addresses people who say you shouldn't study assholes. There are no assholes or it's dehumanizing and all that. And I'm have to say, I have to say why I still think it's an important topic and I'm going to follow it out. The third chapter is on all of the ways we think we can distinguish assholes that we don't, um, that, that don't work. 
And one of the core ones would be by their beliefs. So I am truly nonpartisan on this subject. I mean, I know wonderful conservatives, liberals, et cetera. I know assholes of both variety. I know Buddhist assholes. I know love is the answer assholes. I'm, I don't know them, but I am making a careful guess about what they're doing that's different. There are various people who write in this field, though they don't call it this. There's a, there's a few who get into a detailed taxonomy of different kinds of assholes. That is not my approach. I'm looking for what's common to assholes and how that would have happened with humans, why we would have ended up with, um, with assholes. The other day I did decide that I needed to come up with, I needed to distinguish polite assholes who are people who insist on maintaining decorum while they gaslight and run all over anybody who who thwarts their impulses. Um, But the core, so I got interested in it 25 years ago. And um, in part because I was embroiled in a very intimate, inescapable relationship, offspring actually, with a kid who... I couldn't figure out whether he was handicapped or indulgent. Um, and I realized that I had to, I had to know because if he's indulgent, I have to push him. And if he's handicapped, I have to accommodate him. Those are opposite responses. That's actually what got me into decision theory, but noticing that anybody could, this is like the scales falling from my eyes. I used to think that everybody was an educatable unit. And if you just showed them the true way they would wake up. I don't buy that at all anymore. I think we're not, it's not that simple at all. It's much harder. And that you can't begin to do moral philosophy if you don't factor in that 3% of us are congenital psychopaths and a whole bunch of us opt for, you could say, motivated psychopathy. That is, there are real advantages to being an a-hole if you can get away with it. So the question hit me back then, what is a butthead? Since it can't just be anyone you happen to butt heads with, is what you're, what's our best objective definition of it? And it's got nothing to do with what someone claims to believe. Because I think one of the things about a-holes is that they don't believe what they insist they believe. They don't think about or believe. It's more like animal braying. And if it's effective, they'll keep it up. That is most, it's amazing. You know, animals make sounds to achieve things and they're functional. They're, they're not the same as words. They don't have the same kind. It's a different kind of sim, uh, what they call um, sign. There's, there's, there's different kinds. So language is its own distinct kind of a system where you get this whole bunch of terms that are arbitrarily assigned to things like a dog. The word dog doesn't look or sound or smell like the dog at all. It's a very different kind of sign from, let's say, the scent of a dog or the sight of a dog. Um, and you've got them all interconnected and you can basically make up whole worlds in your mind with words that dogs can't make up. And one of the challenges there is that we are then exposed to way too much world. When you think about what you could uh, worry about at night compared to what your dog could worry about, no, we are we are trudging through a sandstorm of possibilities. Um, worried, fear of missing out, fear of uh, losing, all of that stuff, we would be an anxious creature. And the other thing we can do as an anxious creature is deny or escape um, uh, reality. As a, so, so I think language both generates the motivation um, to escape and gives us a means to do it. And we all do it. So the whole last chapter of the book is about how we need escapism. It's inescapable for a creature like us. No one could be a realist all the time. We all need these flights of fancy, but we need to be able to take them with a return ticket to reality in our chest pockets. Because that's the that's the only difference I see between the, the dangerous and the undangerous versions of uh, escapism. I mean... The difference between a uh, a metalhead concert or a NASCAR race and a cult rally is what people do in the parking lot afterwards. After the, after the metalhead concert, I mean, they can be as vulgar as they want, as full of themselves, as busy chanting lyrics they're not thinking about. You know, all that escapism right on it, because they get in their car and they go home and get back to reality. <laughs> Whereas if you go to a cult rally, you know, you, you get back in the car and you think you found something more real than reality. 
And that's just dangerous. Wow. You know, you, you have to fit reality or die. That's always been the issue. Wow. It's so fascinating so. to think about it in that sense. And I'm going to flip the question back to you. Like, what do you do? What things do you do in your life that, that like, as you've learned you know, what life is about and what we should be focusing on. What are some things that help, help give your life richness and meaning that you really love? Well, no. So, so it's two separate questions. One is what gives me Richmond and richness. And we've been basically talking about that, that the other question is what is my escapism? Mm. And, uh, and, um, because I need it too. I mean, uh, you know, I happen to be an atheist, but don't get me wrong. I, I kid myself as much as the next guy. I have to, I'm human. It's too much. I mean, one of the most fundamental issues for any of us is um, that we throw all into lives that we know will be thrown out of. And this is another effect of language. We're the only creature that can foresee our own inevitable deaths. So, um, no, that's one of the that's one of the difficulties we bear that other organisms don't bear, to, at least to the extent we do. So, what are my escapism? Um, I, I I talk about this as optimal illusion, that is kidding yourself in ways that help more than harm, uh, safe escapism, um, and so I watch I watch tons of TV these days because this is the golden age of TV. And one of the ways we do, we watch it is, um, I mean, part of it, you know, one of my excuses for is I'm practicing music while I do it. um, But also that I'm mainlining human nature concentrate. That is, I really get a lot of, I come up with a lot of ideas watching mostly the extended run series, but I'm also watching a lot of uh, anti-heroes, gangster stuff. I love the, historical thug stuff. I love the Sopranos. I love, I love watching that stuff play out. And Jung talked about how, uh, Carl Jung talked about how uh, all the characters are represented in us and we are identifying with all of them. That's true, but also the movies and uh, fiction in general can coax you to, to identify with some more than others. So yes, I think I I love the Marvel series. I don't um, I don't agree with Scorsese that it's not cinema. It's a different kind of cinema. It's basically polytheism. They're playing out the stuff of the Greek myths, which, from my perspective, is a more interesting approach to a cosmic supernatural uh, thing than the idea that there's a there's one God. He knows the right formula for everything. Um, there's no drama about it. The only thing is whether you get along with his program. I find that both dangerous and also kind of flat. Whereas if you've got um, a bunch of characters, all of them with their different aims and they're, de- they're negotiating among themselves or in combat, I find that a more interesting theology. Um, not that I'm going back to theology, but just I, for my fiction, I certainly do. So, um, so I, I watch that stuff. And yes, of course, I identify with the heroes. Um, but I, so that's what I'd call virtual virtue. That is, I imagine that I'm like the, the hero and the, there's a lot to be said for it. It can motivate heroic behavior, but it also can demotivate it. So the image of someone who goes in to watch a movie like Hotel Rwanda or something where someone does a heroic deed and then he walks out of the theater and there's some homeless person who asks for some money and the guy says, bug off, you know, I already gave in the theater. That's mm-hmm. that's problem with virtual virtue um there's also virtual vice and i certainly indulge in that too this is where you imagine yourself doing nasty stuff um that's where the gangster movies come in pornography would certainly fit into that that is you're doing things that you couldn't you shouldn't couldn't wouldn't do so one of the interesting paradoxes is that we want people to be motivated by virtual virtue as we want virtual virtue to motivate real virtue, but we want virtual vice to substitute for real vice. And we're counting on people to make that distinction intuitively. Mm. And so, yeah, so, you know, so video games are a great way to blow off steam and occasionally get someone who thinks that reality is like virtual, uh, like the, like the virtual vice in grand theft auto and goes out and does terrible things. This is, 
Yeah, because we're relying on people to decide what they're going to do with their how people. We rely on people's intuitions on how to take fiction. Mm. And um, so one of the big issues for me is how how to help people distinguish between the two, fact and fiction, or reality and fiction, and to indulge in both. Because there's no way a life could, none of us are going to survive uh, on on reality alone. It's just too much. Yeah. Wow. We are overwhelmed. Wow. No. <laughs> it's just such a cool way to think about it. I love I love how you frame that. What What is one, what is, if we could distill down, this is, challenging. What would you want a listener to walk away with this conversation from? One simple tip or trick or something that you would, you know, pitch to somebody in an elevator or something. Yeah. So, so for me, the questions are more interesting than any particular formula. Uh, you can say the questions I am addressing are ones I hope to get people interested in. I can't claim to have the answers, the right answers, but I do think the questions are, um, good ones for thinking it up a notch. Um, uh, I also think that there's a methodological, I, this is probably just on my mind because it's been on my mind lately, that is ideas come in waves to me. I've been enjoying something I call inversatility. That is the versatility by which to flip things over um, and look at them from the other side. And if you look at most of the big scientific breakthroughs, uh, Einstein's, Darwin's, um, the guy who gave us information theory, he basically flipped things over. Our approach to the origins of self is about flipping things over. But I also think it applies in everyday life. In versatility is the ability to, um, if you're dealing with a problem, just reverse it. Um, one way that I think about this is um, my natural tendency, if someone thwarts me, uh, is to assume that they've done something wrong. So um, I go from, ouch, you've done me wrong, or I want to you owe. And I give myself five minutes to do that. And after that, I have to address what I'll call the yumiest question. Is the problem you? Is the problem me? Or is the problem us? Um, but but I I assume that I I mean I'm a I'm a testy testosterone guy with a big mouth uh, that he's cultivated. I, I'm not great at biting my tongue. Um, um and and I got out of I'm I'm happily married to solitude these days after many years of relationship, in part because I found in relationship I dealt with a whole lot of uh, trans automatic translating ouch into you've done me wrong, you violated some moral principle I've just pulled out of my butt, um, or uh, I want into you owe. So th there's inversatility there too, to be the ability to step back and look at the possibility that maybe it's you and not them is an important piece of this. Um, but not, it doesn't mean, I mean, there are people who want to come with a, up with a formula about this. For example, if you have a problem with me, that's you, not me. Or um, I can't change anyone else. I can only change myself. As if there's a formula that it's always one party or the other. No, it's a matter of being able to flip things over and then, you know, shop and uh, among different bets about w what the problem is. You know, am I too addicted to this? Am I, are they not addicted enough to me? You know, it, it, the whole, it's not, uh, he's just not that into you is it, you could say a folk version of inversatility. Um, you know, the flip the thing over, you know, why doesn't he love me enough? And I, I, I exercise now in VR. So I listen to a whole lot of pop music and yeah, that still ends up being the song that's sung a lot, which is someone singing to someone saying, you're not listening to me, but of course the person's not listening to them while they're singing the song. So, uh, <laughs> um, irony. <laughs> no, so, so how to, how to deal with those sorts of things. And I guess the other thing I, I would suggest is this thing I'm calling anthropological introspection, where you're not, you're not going for a no mind state where you're just being here now in the moment. It's kind of different from that. You're observing that you are this mid-sized mammal with this completely newfangled and slapstick stuff we call language. Slapstick, and that just the quantity of things that can go wrong with language, um, the quantity of stuff to track that you won't be able to track with language. Um, it just makes us a, humanity is kind of a hoot, and I'm no exception to that hoot. So there, I have discussed, I've, it's been fun to be able to, in effect, invert it and look at myself and laugh at the stuff that I do like other folks do. 
For years, I took it very personally. I thought there was something wrong with me. And now, look, I got over the question of what's wrong with me and got interested in what's up with us, including what makes us tick sometimes like time bombs. That is, humans are dangerous creatures. And um, so just to experience life like that in little glimpses, if that's all you can afford, but I really swear by it. It, it takes a whole lot of pressure off you. You feel like you're a fallible mammal trying to get it right. Mm. Wow. That is, <laughs> that's great. I love looking at life like that. That's such a great definition. Thank you so much <laughs> for this conversation. I just feel like I could sit here and learn from you all day. Where would What's you a, like, where would you like people to go to find you and find your work? Oh, so, so I, I'm, I'm working on a, a, a webpage central location, even that, even though that's old school, you, you don't need it. If you look up Jeremy Sherman, online, you'll find way too much of me in all mediums. That is, <laughs> you, the, the Psychology Today, uh, the Ambigamy and Jerkology blogs, the two YouTube channels, the three podcasts, which I mentioned, which are neither, uh, um, uh, uh, I'll go backwards, um, To Name It Is To Tame It, What's Up With Assholes, um, and Negotiate With Yourself and Win. Um, any of that. And also I'm accessible. If people have real questions and all that, I'm on Facebook. Come join me on Facebook. Um, if you're interested and, and, and then kick the tires on my stuff. You know, we, I get in these, these wonderful conversations with people who I've never met. And we end up with deep conversations just by following out whatever their interests and concerns are or criticism. I mean, in this line of work, like I said, one of the things that's wonderful in this work is you get to debate with people. Truth emerges from disagreements among friends. So I have knockdown, drag out fights with people who I adore and they adore me. It's something that came with philosophy. So anybody who wants to engage with me that way, that's I'm available. I just do this stuff all day. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. That is fantastic. Dr. Jeremy Sherman, thank you so much for all of your work and for coming onto the show today to discuss it. I find it endlessly fascinating, and I'm so grateful for you and for your work and for your time today. So thank you very much. Thank you, Casey. It's been an honor. And this has been another episode of Boundless Body Radio. 